0: Welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Tariq Megarisi, a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's a political analyst and researcher who specializes in Libyan affairs and, more generally, politics, governance, and development in the Arab world. His most recent paper, which you can access on the ecfr.eu website, is titled Spoiler Alert. How Europe Can Save Diplomacy in Libya. And the paper is the focus of our conversation today. Tedek, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Hi, thank you for inviting me back. It's always a pleasure to be here. The ceasefire that was agreed last
0: October, shaky at times, but does seem to be holding. However, the concern is, and and you noted in your paper, I'll quote from the paper, competing sides appeared once again to be using this lean peace process, to prepare for war. I'm just wondering what the evidence on the ground is for that statement.
1: Oh, um, unfortunately, we have far more evidence of preparations for, for war than, than preparations for peace. Um, so, you know, in terms of, of that direct military confrontation that has been going on between uh, Haftar, Russia, the Emiratis on one side and, and uh, Turkey and uh, the government uh, on, on the other side, um, you know, that looks like it's it's entrenching rather than uh, retrenching. Um, and um, if you look at the the kind of new front line that was drawn uh, from Sirte all the way down to Jufra, uh, there have been reinforcements uh, of Russian mercenaries, of Sudanese mercenaries, allegedly orchestrated by the Emiratis. Uh, and they've built these, you know, huge defensive structures, almost like a, a Maginot line of sand. Uh, between Joffre and and Sirt. and you can see this from from satellite images. Um, so it seems that everybody is digging in and, and preparing for more war. Um, and then even if we look at the you know the unconventional battle lines, so you know the cracks between the the various coalitions, uh, we see Tripoli militias loyal to to President Sarraj um, or uh, puppeteering President Siraj to institutionalize them. Um, you know, some of the what was once dubbed uh, the Tripoli e cartel uh, have now been formed into units such as the Stabilization Force. And this is a way to push back against President Siraj's own Minister of Interior, Fateh Bashaga, from uh, becoming Prime Minister and and uh, uh, for what Tripolitanians fear would be another invasion of Misratans into into the capital um, I've probably gone far too deep far too quickly but um, it's just my way of saying that you know I've crossed all of the vast splinters on on Libya's cracking map uh, we've seen signs that everybody is preparing for another round of conflict not to come together and and work to to stabilize the country ahead of elections there
0: is an argument to be made that the longer the stalemate holds as you see these war preparations are going on but but the more likely Libya will split into two. Let me ask you, what's the argument against this happening? Because some will say it's it's real politic. After all, the divisions between East and West have always been there, and the Gaddafi dictatorship simply stitched them together, and they came apart when he fell.
1: I mean, to be fair, the Italians stitched it together long before uh, Gaddafi did. Um, and okay, Libya might be three provinces historically, and, and there are strong... Um, regional identities. Uh, but on the layer below that, there are strong tribal identities, uh, strong community identities. Um, in Tripoli, you know, the militias are are formed out of blocks of neighborhoods. Um, does that mean that we should form, you know, 100 countries uh, out of out of Libya? And there isn't a logical argument for it, right? The play to, to formalize a de facto partition, which has really happened since 2014, plays into the hands of, of troublemakers and opportunists Um, such as uh, the Russians or the Emiratis, whose interests are not in instability. Um, And then you just open up a whole new kind of bag of snakes, right? So the oil infrastructure, for example, is shared between the country, the water infrastructure, the electricity infrastructure, and there's no clear um, border. So... I mean, it's it, it's almost inevitable that, that Western Libya would try to make a play for the oil crescent and you end up just having a war between two countries instead of a, a civil war. Um, so it doesn't really solve anything on that level. And then, I mean, if you look at the the rare polls that have been done of the Libyan people or or even at the kind of report that was produced um, by humanitarian dialogue center who had this mandate from the UN in, in 2018 to go around the country holding town hall meetings to, you know, really get an idea of of what the Libyan people wanted for the future of their state. It is overwhelmingly for unity. They want one government. They want one army, free of foreign interference. Um, And so to to appease or or to kind of follow down the path of of hardening the, the de facto partition at play, again, it doesn't satisfy anybody's grievances. All it does is help the warmongers, come up with new justifications to continue propagating the war. I mean, this this de facto partition at play now is literally being held together from Moscow, not from Libya. I mean, OK, there might be federalists in eastern Libya. There might be those who do like Haftar. There, there might be those who really just hate the government in Tripoli. All three of those groups exist. But that line in Sirte was not drawn by Haftar or by eastern Libyan tribes. It was drawn by Russian jets. Uh, it was drawn by Russian threats to Turkey to stop the government from advancing. And now there is continued pressure to give Eastern Libya the, um, what it needs to continue operating in independence. I mean, this is a wholly manufactured partition. Um, and, and allowing it or, or thinking that it's a natural occurrence is, is a very destructive path to go down.
0: Well, let's talk about the spoilers, because you used that in the title to your paper, Spoiler Alert. Uh, the Russians... Why is it in their interest to play this spoiler game
1: that, that you have described? I mean, if you look at Russia's intervention in Libya compared to other states, Russia has has probably gone the furthest on the least, um, if that makes sense. So, you know, that the Turks really stuck their neck out. Um, they've had a formal intervention, uh, invested a lot on the ground. The Emiratis and the Egyptians have built Haftar for... For six years now, pouring treasure and, and weapons and mercenaries into the country, the Russians today, at the height of their intervention, have somewhere between five and eight thousand mercenaries who are all paid for by somebody else, by the way, um, and about fourteen aircraft. That's a very small investment to become one of the main power brokers in the country. And how they've done that is they've exploited these cracks. Um, so you know consistently from 2015 when they first orchestrated cash shipments um, to eastern Libya to allow this proto-state to emerge in in eastern Libya, they've played off the divisions between east and west uh, and more recently the divisions within the eastern camp between Haftar and and, uh, eastern Libyan tribes to entrench themselves, to make themselves indispensable uh, to one party or another. And so however we would speculate what Russia's end game or, or ultimate goals are, it's very clear that they require an environment of conflict um, and of a continuing civil war, continuing divisions, in fact, even more divisions than there are right now, in order to entrench and in order to, to really get the most bang for their buck. Because at the end of the day, they, they are never going to invest in, in Libya like they have done in, in, in Syria. So for them, it's, it's, it's uh, a cheap investment and great gains only for so long as there's a, a, a war going on.
0: And would those gains include a potentially a naval base uh, at Surt, for example, uh, or, or the air base at Shufra? Are those the kind
1: of gains that the Russians could end up with? I mean, the Russians are already quite clear that they're not leaving Shofre. and And this is actually a strategic threat um, to Europe and to NATO to allow Russia there, and to allow Russia to to continue building the type of denial of access air defense systems um, that they've already embedded in in Syria and so on, because um, you know this is capable of of of, of targeting or identifying uh, and watching over NATO's uh, airbase in Sicily. The Russians already control to a certain degree Cativia Airport, uh, which is Sirts uh, Airport, and Sirts uh, Naval Port, so. If this continues, whereby they're allowed to to entrench on somebody else's dollar and with minimal resistance, um, then I think it's inevitable they're going to try to, to take as much as they can. I mean, why, why wouldn't they if we're talking from a realpolitik perspective?
0: And it was one of their motives for getting engaged in Syria, wasn't it? Uh, to protect their naval interests and indeed establish a much stronger uh, airbase uh, presence
1: yeah, and I was just going to say, it shows you how much things have changed in like uh, in, in, in under 10 years that, that Russia has stuck their neck out. They, they did something they haven't done in years, uh, which is to deploy forces so far away from home in order to protect their last uh, naval port or warm water port, which protects their, their image of themselves as, as a superpower. Um, and a few years later, they're almost claiming another one. With minimal resistance, so it it shows you, um, yeah, how high the the Russian star has risen over the last six seven years.
0: In France, so what is Monsieur Macron up to in Libya? I'm always trying to figure out which side of the of, of the street he's playing on.
1: <laughs> I, I think you're not the only one there. Um, but look, I mean, it's it's not just President Macron here. Although the president is is trying to, as always. Deploy his own kind of personal brand of 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 politics and of diplomacy, but there has been an institutional French position towards Libya um, for at least the past five six years, and this is one that is primarily viewed through through a defense sector lens, through the idea of of counterterrorism, through maintaining partners with uh, sorry through maintaining relationships with counterterror partners that they established in 2014, namely Haftar's forces, um, but also others in in Western Libya. Um, so, for example, you know, their their longstanding relationship with the uh, current interior minister, Fatih Bashar has kind of come out into the open uh, with recent trips from Bashar to Paris. So the the French position is not as clear cut. And I, I, I think it's it's fairly odd how how France is completely unaware of, of how its Libya policy over the last five to six years has been perceived outside of France's borders. Um, And I don't think that they're aware of the level of animosity that's been built up towards them because of this kind of destructive behavior. But, you know, the same the same lodestars for France's regional policy remain, Uh, you know, they're still putting security first um, rather than looking for a a substantive or holistic solution. And they're still prizing a relationship with the United Arab Emirates, which they see to have a regional utility over perhaps uh, a European partnership. Um, which might be more uh, apt for stabilizing Libya.
0: Hmm. Other players, the Turks and Qatar, Egypt and the UAE, are you seeing positions shifting, perhaps softening? Are there any in that crowd who are not spoilers?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think it depends how we're going to define spoilers here. Um, And what happened in, in June when when the whole Haftar enterprise collapsed in on itself. It was a, it was a wake up call for at least the Egyptians. Uh, and it was a real opportunity to finally um, get out of a position that they had, had over invested in and, and didn't see any other alternative to. Um, and at the same time, you know, Turkey had, had made their investment. They had stopped um, Haftar taking Tripoli. They had uh, pacified and stabilized Western Libya to some degree. Um, they're not looking for more war. They're looking to, to turn their investment into gains right now. But these two can be potential outliers um, or or not spoilers, only if they're given something to not spoil. And this is where the, the Western world or, or the part of the international community that's not directly interfering in Libya's conflict and is instead trying to back a diplomatic process has fallen down. Because they've not reached out, they've not tried to engage them adequately, um, nor really give them an, an end game that everybody can buy into, can see their interests protected in, and so on. Um, and I think that's important, especially if we're, if we're going to start trying to divide um, the interventionists in Libya into those that we can work with and those that we have to defend against.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, in your paper, you argue very cogently that Europeans have a role to play a role that, for their own self-interest, if nothing else, they should seize with both hands. How do you see that working? Because Europe is split too. I mean, Germany hosts the Berlin talks, Haftar and the UAE effectively sabotage the 2019 talks, Macron backs Haftar, Italy is somewhere in between. Do you see those three getting together to push for an end to the war? I know you proposed that in the paper, but is that that reasonable and feasible?
1: It's reasonable and feasible, but that doesn't mean that it will happen. You know, I, this is something that I advocate for, um, but it's, uh, we've, we've, we've entered into a dichotomy now. You know, Libya is no longer just a messy place. It's, it's at the edge of a, of a precipice, um, especially from the European perspective. So either Europeans give Libya the level of priority, uh, and I'm talking about Libya as an entity here, um, so the stability of Libya, the idea of Libya as a, as a partner or an entity that, that, that they engage with, either they give that the same level of priority that they've given to some of the symptoms of Libya's instability, you know, namely how much political capital the Italians have thrown behind stopping migration uh, or the French behind counterterrorism insurgencies and so on, or they simply become uh, negligible. They become removed from the picture, unable to to influence the politics or, or the military dynamics, um, and there will be a lot of hand wringing in the future if this happens because it means that we're almost doomed uh, for for more war as opportunistic actors like like Russia continue to play a a game of realpolitik. Uh, the Turks, the Emiratis, the Egyptians are all unwilling to to step back from core strategic interests. I mean, it's a nightmare scenario. So. The idea that that France, Germany, Italy, uh, and even other involved states, um, you know European Union member states such as uh, Spain and Denmark and so on can, can get together and form a cogent and coherent European Libya policies is not something you know outside of the realms of of credibility or, or reasonableness. I mean Europeans work well together on a number of other foreign policy issues and a number of domestic policy issues. The key is whether they can see, that their obsession with the short term and their obsession with symptoms um, is killing them over the long term and and leaving them completely powerless to stop a a tidal wave, as it were. And that's a question I don't have the answer to yet, but I'll tell you in six months. Okay.
0: And of course, the tidal wave, you're you're talking about migrants too, aren't you?
1: I I mean, it's bigger than migrants. It's I mean, look at this conceptually. Libya is the heart of the southern neighbourhood, the southern Mediterranean. So, I mean, just from a kind of strategic picture, if you have no influence in Libya as Europe, it means you have no influence over the main gateway of migrants. Yes, this is correct. Um, and we've already seen how migrants are used as leverage um, over Europe uh, by Turkey uh, and b- and by, by Libyans. But it also means that they have no partner for, for counter-terror operations. They have no partner to stop Libya bleeding into other areas of of European interest, the Sahel destabilizing Tunisia, destabilizing Algeria, even Egypt potentially. Um, And it also means that they're powerless to stop, you know, people who are are publicly their strategic enemies, um, such as President Putin and the the Russians, from posing a real strategic threat to what was once dubbed Europe's or, or NATO's soft underbelly. Um, so there is a whole host of, of strategic threat and risk that's, that's coming in here. I mean, as you said in in your question, it, it's Europe's self-interest um, as much as it is Libya's self-interest um, for for Europeans to to step in and, and do a bit more and, and try to stabilize um, things together instead of focusing on, on migration or CT or on pleasing the Emiratis or not upsetting the Turks and so on and so forth.
0: Now, the UN, you give the UN what I'd call a, a mixed review and yet you're still holding out hope what is the un doing better now than it was with its previous efforts and what more can
1: it do yeah look the the united nations support mission in in libya is in a is in a very difficult place um you know it's not the most glamorous job uh, on the un portfolio but it's under-resourced its uh, staff are overstretched probably burnt out by now And they're consistently undermined by all of their different member states. Um, UNSMIL and and the UN processes is a facade uh, for other people to hold up whilst they continue intervening behind the scenes. And that is why the situation has gone as it has done. Um, You know, I will always say that the UN process uh, is the most important thing to keep going. uh, Because the second the UN process dies, uh, it's the second that everybody steps out from behind the facade and, and becomes more more boisterous as a result because they no longer have anything to hide. Uh, it's also the time when when diplomacy gets infinitely more complicated because without the UN there, uh, you end up with the with the African Union, with the Arab League, with the European Union, with with every entity which feels like it should be involved getting involved, and you have rival processes, and it becomes extremely messy. Um, the key to this situation here is is to not rely on, on the U.N. to do the heavy lifting. Um, you know, we have to keep the U.N. process there, yes. But, you know, Europeans, the United States as well, should should use that U.N. process as, as their cover to to do more constructive diplomacy rather than try to, to you know, just pass the buck onto them.
0: You mentioned uh, America. A new man in the White House and clearly new directions, rolling back uh, many of Trump's most objectionable approaches to foreign diplomacy. Uh, what role can you envision the new Biden administration playing?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, the the potential uh, de- depends on on how big a role the the Biden administration would like to play, uh, and I think that depends on a number of things. You know the. The balance of its wider relationship with key intervening states, uh, states such as the, the, the UAE, Turkey and Russia, um, the, the bandwidth it's going to have because it's obviously got a lot of domestic and, and international issues to deal with. But, you know, the, let's tweak this a bit to say what's the best role that they could play. Um, and I think that would be encouraging the Europeans to to pick up the ball that they've dropped this idea you know almost back to the framework of 2011 that the united states will lead from behind if the europeans can lead from the front and you know this is a the way to provoke the europeans into demonstrating that they have strategic autonomy that that they that they can look after themselves um, and to really give that incentive or that little jolt from behind um, for the Europeans to stop working at odds with with one another over, frankly, petty issues and, and come together over a serious strategic threat. And then, you know, throwing that that American diplomatic muscle uh, behind that process um, in terms of, you know, ensuring that the, the Turks and the Egyptians buy into it. Um, that they're actively a part of it so that they, they, you know, they no longer seek to spoil it because it is their process as much as it is a European process. And, and you know, blocking um, the Emirates, uh, the Russians and the other warmongers uh, in the field from, from coming and, and spoiling everything. So they can play a very important part in, in backing up a process or, or just adding gravity and, and a realistic threat perception to that process. Um, I think the worst case scenario would be that uh, the Americans kind of unilaterally raise the stakes because you know there is obviously uh, a lot of disquiet amongst the us defense sector over how Russia is entrenching, a lot of frustration that the Europeans don't seem to see the threat the same way that they do. Um, and you know if if the the stakes rise considerably and we end up with a Russian American you know showdown or, or squaring up to one another, um, in Libya, then it just means that Libya is escalated once again, you know, from an Arab Spring issue to a regional power game and now to a great power game. Um, and I think that will only create more stalemate, uh, probably more war down down the line.
0: How well, vigorously do you think the Europeans should be in terms of pursuing uh, this objective of, of driving towards a, a, a peace dialogue? I mean, for example, should they be considering more robust action against the
1: UAE? I think so. I mean, it's not a case of of robust action. Um, I mean, right now there is no action. Um, I mean, even when the United Arab Emirates frankly embarrassed the German Chancellor by by sending arms shipments um, to Libya whilst their delegates are sitting in the Berlin Conference discussing why there should be an arms embargo on Libya and and throwing their weight behind uh, whatever a statement that, that reconfirms it. But look, the... You know, this is, this is geopolitics and there's no such thing as, as, as black or white. And, and the Europeans have a very wide relationship with the United Arab Emirates that I'm sure, you know, a lot of states and not just France are invested in carrying into the future. The question of how to deal with the UAE as well as how to deal with Turkey are, are actually pretty similar. It's, it's what kind of modus vivendi do you want to create? with these regional powers moving forward. Uh, what is the most constructive relationship you can have that protects your interests first, um, but recognizes, you know, what is a real vital strategic interest of the United Arab Emirates, and what is indulging their, their political fears or, or their um, arrogance, um, which is a lot of what their Libya campaign is. And that's a very different question. Um, and I think that makes this issue much bigger than, than Libya, but Libya is the stage for this. Um, the stage where Europeans have to learn that it's not just you're either an ally and you're, you know, you're blindly my friend uh, or you're my enemy and we, we must confront each other or not speak to each other and so on. Um, it's finding that that mode is vivendi for the new era. What does European strategic autonomy mean in its closest neighborhoods? Um, how will it work with others? How will it uh, assertively protect its interests? Um, and on that point, it means that, yes, they do have to be more tough. Um, you know to to use the weight of, of European trade uh European uh, legal instruments such as sanctions and it doesn't even have to go you know zero to a hundred right away there's also the kind of um, this their soft power ideal uh, of letting the emirates know that that what they're doing is is being seen and and scraping away at this brand that the emirates uh, so carefully manicure of themselves you know the the United Arab Emirates is um, is applying to be a a member of the Security Council. Uh, And of course, there's all this kind of flowery language about how they uphold multilateral efforts and so on. But nobody's mentioning the fact that they violate the UN arms embargo on a daily basis and also just kind of pointing to to some of the other activities they do. I mean, why is a a ostensible ally uh, of Europe uh, and the US and the country that's angling to be their main proxy in the region? Uh, according to the Pentagon, at least funding Russian mercenaries to embed and entrench in a way that poses a strategic threat to these allies in Europe and and uh, and the USA. Uh, and in the 21st century, you know, why is the third state uh, here, the Emiratis, allegedly, uh, according to some investigations that have gone on, press-ganging young Sudanese men, you know, offering them jobs as a security company or whatever, and then sending them to the front lines in Libya? I mean, these things should be publicized. to, you know? try to hurt that branding. And I mean, if we can talk about a rule of thumb for engaging with Libya, uh, we kind of mentioned this with the Russians earlier, but it's just making your intervention more expensive. Don't allow people to get away with with murder without even a peep in response. Um, And then that gives us a sliding scale of response. It gives us policy instruments. It it creates a real relationship, you know.
0: Mm. Finally, uh, Tarek, I mean, ordinary Libyans must be just, so fed up and so cynical. I wonder what they make up. For example, talk of countrywide elections in December of 2021. What is the response on the street to that sort of uh, idea?
1: I don't think anybody believes it's actually going to happen. Um, and if that's not a damning indictment uh, of how the the momentum behind the UN process, um, the current political forum, and the roadmap or whatever we're going to call it has has gone, um, then I, I don't know what is. I mean, look, there's always going to be a huge enthusiasm in the Libyan street um, from east to west, north to south over getting rid of the current tranche of of Libyan politicians, of of the self-declared political elite. Uh, And elections seems to be the most straightforward path to that. And so people will hang their hat on that, um, despite the many problems that will come if elections are held in an environment which is not dissimilar to the one that that Libya has today. Um, but, you know, in in reality, it's it's so disheartening to see because there was huge enthusiasm back in September. Um, so there was, you know, this idea that the war had ended, Haftar had been pushed back, uh, you know, not defeated for good. He's still there, but whatever. At least there are no more shells falling on Tripoli and so on. Protests had come out um, across the country talking about corruption and the pressure that they caused, you know, it, Allowed the oil embargo to be lifted it put new momentum behind the UN process. And there was an idea that people were reclaiming their country, that, you know, the, the Haftar experiment is dead. Now we're going to try something new. And then the way the UN process went, it's almost like it's back to square one, right? There was a, an elite-led process, uh, which is, the, you know, the worst kind of horse trading uh, between people who really have no solid constituency, um, such as the Minister of Interior, uh, Bashar, uh, Aguila Salah, the Speaker of the Parliament. Um, and, you know, these people are leading a process that they're not even formally a part of. And the, the Libyans see all this, you know, they watch it, it's reported on a hundred different Facebook pages, and then they, they, they see these other side processes where... You know, the, the main offices of state um, or, or those that channel the state funds like the Central Bank and the, the Libyan Foreign Bank and one uh, of these state-owned companies are essentially parceled out between the same political elite uh, and everything is just rubber stamped. So, you know, the these two legislative bodies, the High Council of State and the House of Representatives, they came together in Morocco and they essentially just agreed on how to divvy up the spoils for the next year. And now, you know, there's talk of, of dividing everything by, by region. And, and when people see this, it's, it's the worst kind of disheartening. Um, and, you know, as you said, it just creates immense cynicism that all we're leading towards uh, is another year of immense looting, because um, that's the only way to describe what's, what's happened to the Libyan state. A more structured form of looting, because now the pie is divided. And you know, a situation that will is far more likely to end up in war uh, than it is in elections. Um, and and that's the level of disappointment that that the Libyan people are trying to deal with at the moment. Um, and I don't think that's adequately recognized um, by those leading the UN process or or some of the the politicians or, or the diplomats who are cheerleading it from the sidelines and, and really buying into some of the triumphalist announcements um, that, you know, an electoral mechanism has been agreed or, or elections have been agreed for 2021 or a ceasefire was agreed in October and so on.
0: Yes, um, that uh, disconnect between those elites and the people, it plays out so often in, uh, in the Middle East in the wake of the Arab spring. Derek, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Tariq Megarisi, a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East Program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. His most recent paper, which you can access on the ecfr.eu website, is titled Spoiler Alert! How Europe Can Save Diplomacy in Libya. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student... We have a new rate of 10 pounds a month, or 100 pounds per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.